What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern on Pacifica Affiliates, WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD Kasilov in Anchorage, Alaska. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project, streaming, podcasting, and archive at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Uh, Today we have Ron Unger. Ron is a longtime activist with the international human rights organization Mind Freedom International. And uh, Ron is a mental health worker, a counselor with different agencies in Eugene, Oregon. He's someone who goes through his own experiences of madness himself. And he's also um, a teacher and organizer around getting more awareness and use of cognitive behavioral therapy for different kinds of experiences that get labeled psychosis or that go along with a diagnosis like schizophrenia. It's a form of talk therapy, and we're going to be hearing more about that, um, more about cognitive behavioral therapy um, from Ron uh, during this show. So thanks a lot for joining us today on Madness Radio. Ron Unger. I will. Yeah, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I, you know, I heard that you were at the big uh, recovery conference in Toronto um, last month, and I'm I'm sorry that I wasn't able to make it to that, but I heard that your workshop was really fantastic, and I'm really excited to have you on the show um, today to talk about um, cognitive behavioral therapy and to talk about your activist work in the system. But um, now you have not someone who's actually been um, locked up or been forced on medication or anything, but you're someone who does go through or has gone through experiences that would get considered to be madness or extreme states. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Ron Bassman, who is supposed to be at the conference, and he's a psychologist who wrote a book recently called A Fight to Be about his own time when he was two times diagnosed and locked up. He talks about how he was a young man, and he was actually felt like he was doing okay in the world, though his experiences had gotten very altered, and he was kind of in a, in a strange place in his life, and his family was worried about him, and so they... Um, you know, thought he was crazy and needed to go to the hospital. So he decided he would go there just to show his family that he really wasn't crazy, which was a huge mistake because as soon as he went in, they strapped him down and treated him as he was totally psychotic, which pretty soon that he was totally disorganized and incapable of, of uh, doing much. So Yeah, we did I actually have... We did actually have Ron on the, on the show, I guess a couple or three months ago. It was a really interesting... Um, to have him and to hear about his book and so but you didn't quite have that same experience you had a slightly different experience right yeah I didn't I didn't have a family that was kind of like monitoring what I was what I was doing and so and I did have supportive friends which Ron had some of those too um, but I just I didn't have anybody you know that was that forced me into the system and so I was going through some strange experiences like there was one psychologist who taught at a local college and I was going to his classes and I would talk to him and the psychologist said well I'm supposed to be watching out for people that seem to be having a psychotic break and you seem like you're having some psychotic experiences but you're not really in trouble so I'm not worried about you and so we would just talk about what I was going through which is you know pretty uh, humane way of of working with somebody and so I, I went through different kinds of experiences but I didn't go so far into them that I lost my ability to um, you know, keep from scaring people or that I, that anybody forced me into the system. And I, I was very aware of the system and was wary of it. I, I, I was deliberately not going to go for help from anybody that was um, into forced treatment and that kind of stuff. When you say you were having these experiences that were kind of like on the edge of psychosis or they were psychosis, but this professor wasn't too worried about you, um, to the point of wanting to hospitalize you, what kinds of experiences were they? Were you hearing voices or were you kind of having strange thinking or what was going on? I heard voices just briefly and that was more associated with smoking too much marijuana, but a lot of it had to do with what more like what would be considered strange thinking. Like one of my beliefs was that I could just really recreate the universe by how I thought about it. That would be yeah. considered strange to me, actually. I go there. <laughs> I'm pretty much. Yeah, that's well, sometimes my... it's very, it's very um, normal and helpful. I, I mean, I think I was taking it to a degree and, and to, with an intense intensity 
that um, it would have been a psychiatrist wouldn't have wanted to let me out of the hospital while I was thinking that way. But actually, there was a lot that was useful about that way of thinking, which is often true about a lot of people's experiences that if they're interpreted in the right way or if you take the right side of them, they're actually something that's potentially helpful. Exactly. And I think a lot of these experiences are also on a on a continuum. So when you actually start to talk to people about voices, for example, or strange beliefs or telepathy, a lot of people say, well, I've had that that thing as well. But I think that when you start to really go into madness, there's an overwhelming kind of quality and you're really sort of preoccupied with it and really just sort of getting lost in it. And it just becomes something that's really inescapable and starts to define your whole, your whole reality. So, but this idea that, um, you know, our thoughts create our, our reality or our thoughts control the universe. That's also a very spiritual belief in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and a lot of what gets called madness is, has a lot to do with spirituality. A lot of the problem, I mean, if somebody is exploring kind of like the spiritual frontier or whatever, they run the risk of getting lost or losing perspective in various ways. Um, but they also have the possibility of seeing things in a, in a new way. Or, And so I think a lot of what I went through was, um, it was often pretty intense, but I didn't go so far with it that I lost my ability to function in the world. So I was, it was kind of an, an on-the-edge kind of thing. What were some of the other kinds of things that you were going through in addition to these beliefs? Well, wh- one of the things was um, just a whole disorganized, but well, from the point of view of psychiatry, it would have been disor- disorganized thinking or thought disorder, um, though a lot of it was that I was trying to break free of ways of, of associating and ways of thinking that were kind of like typical to the culture. So it was really a lot for me trying to break free of old ways of thinking, which as I look back on it now, I can see that because I had a traumatic childhood and it kind of like grown up with a very poor self-image that a lot of what I was trying to break free of is the ways of thinking that I had been kind of like forced into as a kid. Uh, But that made me, like, for example, I'd watch a movie and I wouldn't even be able to follow the plot often the way other people would because I would just be having so many associations to other kinds of things and, and seeing things, and, and in a way, a really creative way, but in a way that made me incapable of kind of like following things in the way you're kind of supposed to follow them. It's really interesting talking to you about this because you have this ability to both kind of see it from inside the experience, like sort of understand it really how it makes sense from the inside, but then also realize that from the outside, it, it didn't make sense. Yeah, I think so. And at the time, I was aware that the, the challenge for me was to take what, what I was going through and somehow make sense of it to other people. And that's something that uh, I worked pretty hard to find a way to articulate. And you know, been a long time coming. I had, um, I ran into some other people back then when I was young, some of whom were in the psychiatric system for at least a while, but then got out of it and got also worked at getting good at being able to kind of like take things that seemed kind of crazy and explain them and, or present them in ways that they kind of worked culturally. Um, I was involved in down by in the Bay Area and this group called the San Francisco Suicide Club, which was into doing strange adventures and stuff. And uh, we kind of like were, you know, somehow the stuff that we were going through, we were kind of like rebelling against the culture, but we also had to kind of like learn to make sense to each other and learn to uh, somehow put it in, put things into a form that they made sense to other people. And that's really, I think, where people can go from really feeling like just they're mad to feeling like, hey, I actually have something to contribute. I have something that's worth something here. And it sounds like maybe you also got kind of lucky. You didn't, um, you didn't, for example, talk about what you were going through with a professor who got alarmed and immediately called the campus police or something like that, that you actually maybe also had some resources or you you were able to um, kind of take care of yourself even though you were going through all these extreme experiences? Yeah, so part of it was probably luck. Part of it was a cultural thing at the time. In the early 70s, early to mid-70s, the culture loosened up somewhat. 
and uh, was more open to altered experiences. And um, I recently talked with the person at, actually up in Toronto at the, the conference. I talked to somebody who had been the clinical director of Soteria, which happened during that time. And he said that actually recovery rates went up during that time in the country. And, and we've talked about one of the reasons probably was there was this more greater openness to alternative experiences. So if you're acting weird or talking weird, you're kind of a little bit more accepted and maybe not as, as scary to people in the early 70s where just kind of weirdness and the drug culture and hippies and kind of the countercultural scene is really shaking up the society and, and opening people up to experimentation and, and different ways of, of acting and behaving. That's really interesting. So then what um, what other kinds of, I'm really curious about, you know, your experiences themselves. What other kinds of things were you, you were going through? It sounds like it was a very creative state that you were in. You would go to movies and you just couldn't follow them the way that other people could. And then you just had all these creative associations and ideas. What were some of the other things that were that were going on? Were you kind of acting in weird ways? Were you kind of moving differently or interacting with people strangely or? Yeah. And, and, uh, and often that was kind of deliberate. Like I can actually, with one of my friends, like uh, I can remember going out with some people that he worked with at a restaurant and they were all talking in ways that I thought were very boring and conventional. And so I just began talking and really um, uh, very thought disordered sorts of ways, just making very random associations and, 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 kind of like talking in a surrealistic manner, which my friend could actually appreciate because he would also experiment with such ways of thinking. But everyone else there thought I was crazy, but I just kind of like played with it. And then we actually came up with this thing where he um, said, well, I have to take you back to the, you know, the asylum now or something like that. I can't remember what word we use. And he actually drove with another person from that group to, we actually took me to a nursing home because there was no asylum in the town. <laughs> but it was kind of funny. We were basically playing with the whole thing of of being insane but part of it was that i really thought the way i was talking was more meaningful than the way they were talking and if you had been in the wrong situation if you had got into a run-in with the police or if say a family member had gotten scared about your behavior things could have gone really badly for you that's exactly what i, I meant or I, I was trying to say earlier because you know i was already feeling like i was barely understandable and if the system had gotten a hold of me and defined me as mentally ill, then I really would have felt non-understandable um, and probably would have responded by getting more extreme in my own stuff. And then, of course, the system would have gotten more extreme in response and the whole thing would have just ratcheted up into a disaster. Yeah, there have been a number of people on the on the show who will have spiritual experiences where they get very far out and wild and very different from the rest of the culture, but they're happy, they're doing great, and things are going good until they run into a doctor or they run into a, a police officer or a family member who is scared and then uses force and gets into a conflict with them, and then boom, it just changes, and the whole thing just goes in a very, very traumatizing direction. So in a lot of ways, you, you kind of got lucky. You sort of escaped that whole scenario. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely happy about that. Ron, was that where you kind of got your interest in studying psychology and becoming a counselor? Because it sounds like you've done a lot of work to really understand what all of that was about. You've really integrated a lot of those experiences. Yeah, that's definitely true. That's where I, I got interested. I mean, back in those days, I was reading like the writers of the time, like R.D. Lang and Gregory Bateson and others who were trying to understand those kind of experiences from a humanistic perspective. And so I had that interest back then. I initially started studying uh, psychology, but I got so fed up with the way it was taught that I, and I got interested in wilder ideas that um, I dropped out of studying psychology. But then when I managed to go back to school more in midlife, that's what I went back into. Now, when did you get interested in um, activism and get involved with Mind Freedom International? Because I know that's a, a big part of your work uh, these days, is, is working to change the system from a human rights uh, perspective. Yeah, I was uh, fortunate enough to live in Eugene, Oregon, where David Oakes um, kind of like got going with 
his his organizing and so i was at one of the first events he ever tried to organize in in eugene i think it was called full moon rising or something like that and then later it was the clearing house for human rights and psychiatry and then support coalition and now mind freedom international um so um i i just was interested from the very beginning in in what was going on with that because it tied in with my own interest that gee something has to be done differently in how people that are going through these kind of experiences are related to now one of the things that you do in your workshops is that you give examples of how the mental health system actually can be doing the very same patterns of behavior or disordered thinking or whatever they call it that they claim that the patients are doing can you tell us tell us about that because it's a very interesting I know from from having been in the system I know that it's true but it's great to have somebody who's actually analyzed it and broken it broken it down yeah, I mean, one of the things, uh, one of the examples might be the way that um, people take something that's basically going on and rather than just stick with watching what's going on, people make up a name for it and start treating it like it's a thing in itself. So, for example, a person might have some fears that are affecting them and they notice that happening, but then they start thinking of it as a demon and now that it's the demon persecuting them. And so rather than kind of understand how the process of fear works inside them, they just named it a demon and they feel like, you know, they're fighting a demon now and, and talking about it in that terms. And there's, since there's nothing practical they can do against the demon, then they feel really overwhelmed and, and all that. But then the system comes in and says, no, it's not a demon. It's schizophrenia. Well, what's schizophrenia, but just kind of like this label that somebody puts on it that, then what do you do about a schizophrenia? You know, it's like it's not something that you has any kind of tangibility. Um, of course, they give you drugs, which is what they say is the solution for it, but it often doesn't work or it makes it worse in some other way. Um, so it's it's like treating a label or as though it's a real thing rather than looking from a step-by-step way of what's actually going on and what do you actually see and, and what are the the whole variety of things you might be able to do about what's going on. That, not that's a, a great example or not, but it's one. Another example that I've used is, is the idea of like doing things to keep yourself safe that actually make things worse, which is what people that have mental health problems commonly do. For example, a person feels like other people are watching them, so they try to keep themselves safe by always staying inside or only going out with, you know, like a, you know, sunglasses and a hat low over their face or something like that and, and maybe draw more attention to themselves by the way they're relating or something like that. So what they think they're doing to keep themselves safe is making things worse. But the mental health system does things like giving people neuroleptics, which um, is meant to keep people safe, but in the long term often kind of like shuts people down, makes them... Um, doesn't actually increase recovery rates because it hasn't been been proven to do that. In fact, maybe increases chronic mental illness is what Robert Whitaker has been pointing out. The data seems to indicate. So it's it, it looks like it's keeping you safe, and in the short term, it does often keep you a little safer. But in the long term, it makes you more at risk and makes things worse. But it's not recognized as being part of the problem. Now I know one of the things that you do and and teach and you're working um, to reform the system around is the use of cognitive behavioral therapy to help people who are going through mind states or thinking or experiences that they have a hard time with and they're overwhelming and that may get diagnosed and labeled as psychosis or or schizophrenia. And, And so how did you first kind of discover Cognitive. I want to get into what it is exactly and, and how it works and, and giving us some some sense of that. But how did you kind of dis- discover it and get interested in it? Well, one thing I was interested in is how the mental health system relates to voices because it always struck me as weird that, like, when we have, you know, negative self-talk, that's just considered a normal human thing and there's a zillion psychological ways of dealing with it. But as soon as somebody started saying, oh, mine is a voice, 
um, and imagining it as a, a voice rather than just self-talk, then all of a sudden the mental health system treats it as though, that, oh, this is you know a weird symptom of a dysfunctional brain and it needs lots of medication and hospitalization. And, and it seemed to me like the two things weren't that different and, and could be related to in a different way. And so then I, you know, somehow found a link or an article to somebody over in England who was um, working with voices in a more psychological way. And I actually emailed the person and he emailed me back about the kind of work he was doing. And I took that to our local county mental health department and said, hey, I'd like to do a group like this. And they actually allowed me to to do that. And um, so that's how I first heard about a cognitive therapy, as well as I learned about the whole hearing voices movement around the same time. So that's interesting. So it's the idea that, again, we were talking earlier about kind of a continuum of experiences. So someone who, you know, says that they're hearing voices, demonic voices, or they're hearing, you know, entities talking to them or some kind of, you know, really mad, crazy experience, then the, the, the mental health system often, psychiatry will often say, okay, you know, you have sort of like a broken brain in the sense that you have got this disordered um, disease happening called auditory hallucinations. And it's completely different from the experiences that we have normally where it's just, we're just thinking. It's our thoughts. It's not voices at all. And actually my experience, because I do hear voices and I experience, um, you know, uh, I've been diagnosed for for auditory hallucinations. And my experience is that there's much more of a, of a continuum that actually thinking that I have myself and then thinking that I kind of happens to me and then thinking that kind of I can't control and then thinking that starts to have like a voice quality and then voices and then voices that I can't stop and then voices that are kind of coming at me and attacking me. All of that's part of a, of a continuum in my own experience. Is that kind of what you're, what you're saying here in terms of using cognitive behavioral therapy to deal with voices as a thought problem or, or struggling with someone's um, thinking patterns? Yeah, I think you described that continuum very beautifully, and the continuum idea is a key concept within cognitive therapy for psychosis, that, um, that what gets called psychotic experiences are, are typically just experiences that are on a continuum with what all of us go through. They're on a bit more of an extreme end of the continuum, but that if you can understand it on that continuum, you can kind of like normalize it you can kind of like see, oh, yeah, I can kind of like see how given, you know, what's going on, it's it's actually kind of normal for something like this to happen. And maybe if I do it a little more this way, it'll ease up a little. But instead of what the the mental health system more typically does, I call it abnormalizing, whereas it creates a, a totally different word for what's going on. Um, and and puts it in a totally different category and and basically convinces you not to even notice the connections between it. So, you know, they'll say that if you're a mental patient, they'll say that you're attending to internal stimuli. And if you're not a mental patient, you can just sit there and think. But basically both involve attending to internal stimuli. And this Um, is a very radical um, difference because as my understanding is in... um, psychiatry and when I was in the hospital and in the system, I was never asked to talk about what my um, delusions were or voices were in any kind of depth. They wanted to know that it was happening, but as soon as they knew that it was happening, they like tried to shut it down. Like you don't want to engage with it because it's considered to be stimulating it or, or making it worse that you could actually magnify it by focusing on it. But the approach that you're taking is completely different than that, where it's the idea that, look, you have to explore it, you have to go into it, you have to cr- try and, and deal with it and address with it as it's it's happening rather than just pushing it away. Yeah, it's like the way most of us sort through our thoughts is to talk about them with someone else. Um, but when people have kind of like extreme experiences, in a way, they're more in need of someone to talk about them than usual. But when they're at those extremes, they're often that kind of talk is way less accessible. First, maybe the person has acted a little crazy and, and alienated some of their usual friends and family. And then when they get in the mental health system, the, the mental health system has taken this approach. Oh, we don't dare talk to you about that. We might aggravate it. And so they won't talk. And so the person is, 
had no assistance at all in, in sorting sorting through things, which cognitive therapy aims to reverse that. It aims to establish a relationship and actually start talking about it in a kind of an open-minded way. Yeah, you really put your finger on it because I was kind of thinking, okay, what is it, you know, if, if it's not a disease and it's not a genetic kind of problem, then what actually is mental illness, <laughs> you know? And it's not really different thinking. It's not really the, um, if someone has bizarre beliefs or acts strangely because people in churches or in religious movements or political movements or the counterculture, they can have pretty wild ideas. I mean, uh, the United States is full of people with very strange beliefs and practices and, and groups. And really the kind of the key um, to what gets understood uh, as mental illness is this sense of isolation, that the person is different and they're alone over there in their own world, in, in a sense. And if they can socialize and they can have a group of people in a community around them, well, we, we just call them a movement or we might call them a cult or something, but we don't really call them uh, you know, mentally ill in that sense because it's, it's not isolated. So the the point that you're making about, you know, the way in which the system separates out people and then turns a certain part of their experience off limits and then doesn't engage with that, that just creates more of the isolation and then the way in which the work that you're doing builds a relationship by talking with people and exploring their inner experience. I think it's really, really, really important. Um, Ron, maybe we should back up a little bit and maybe just tell us a little bit about what cognitive behavioral therapy is in general because it's hugely popular um, in the mental health and the psychotherapy field has helped a lot of people. There's lots of books that you can read about. And I think what's different about what you're doing is is working with experiences that get called psychosis and and delusions and voices and things. But what is cognitive therapy just in general? Well, really, in, in general, um, cognitive behavior therapy is just based on the idea that if you learn to think and act differently, your um, mental health problems or your emotional problems can just disappear. That, you know, somehow that you've um, been accidentally fallen into way of, a way of thinking or acting that is creating a problem, but if you change that, the problem can go away. And so it's uh, about experimenting with different ways of thinking and acting so that the, the problem can go away. And they've, it's been found, like if a person is depressed, they've usually gotten um, fallen into certain ways of thinking about themselves and certain patterns of behavior that are inadvertently feeding the depression. But if they kind of like learn to understand that and learn to try thinking and acting other ways, often the depression will just clear up and the person can go on with their lives. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and we're listening to Ron Unger from Eugene, Oregon. He is a counselor with different agencies in the mental health system, and we're talking with him about the use of cognitive behavioral therapy for people who are considered psychotic or who have um, been given a diagnosis such as schizophrenia or who are experiencing delusions. And Ron is also an activist in Mind Freedom International Human Rights Organization, and we're talking with him about his activism. Well, let's um, let's take that as an example for depression. Now, break that down. Like, what kinds of behaviors or thought patterns might someone who is um, complaining about depression have? And then, how would cognitive therapy kind of what kinds of tools and techniques would cognitive therapy um, use? Because I know a lot of people listening to this program probably deal with depression, and I've I've found the cognitive therapy techniques can be really helpful. Yeah. So an example might be when you're depressed, it often feels like everything that you do is kind of useless. And and so you might have this just this general cloud, you know, whatever I do, it's just going to continue to be just as bad. Um, but a cognitive therapist is more likely to say, well, let's see exactly. Like, why don't you keep track every hour of the day what you do and then rate your depression that hour and see if there's any differences at all. And then you might notice, you know, that, oh, yeah, when I – took the dog for a walk because it was begging. I was a little less depressed than when I sat and uh, stared at the wall or, you know, something else. And then you might, oh, okay, so walking the dog, you're a little less depressed. Well, maybe getting out more, you know, would, would help. And so maybe the person experiments with that and find, oh, yeah, I was just a little less depressed. And so then they start paying attention to just little differences. And out of those little differences, they start 
uh, increasing their ability to believe that, oh, yeah, something will make a difference, and, and their whole patterns start changing, and, and after a while they're not depressed. That's an example of something that can happen. Are there other examples for, like, different kinds of thought patterns that people get into? And I think that's a really good example of just, like, I'm, you know, I'm, I always feel bad. Well, it's not actually true that if you examine your day, sometimes you feel better than others, and then that starts to give you a little bit more control about and also better, more perspective on what, what's going on. Right. And there's often lots of beliefs about it. For example, a cognitive therapist will look at the way beliefs about perfectionism will often play into depression. Like in order for, you know, um, me to be doing any good, I have to be achieving at such and such level. Well, is that, but then you raise your standards so high sometimes that you feel unachievable and then you just, kind of like give up and don't try anything, one thing that often works is saying, well, maybe because you are kind of depressed, you're not going to have a wildly great day, but, you know, where do you get, you know, what about saying that even if I accomplish a little more than I did yesterday, that that's worth something? And if the person can kind of like lower their standard a little bit, then they find that all of a sudden they can have a successful day by their own rating because they've lowered their standard of what's a good day is, and then that gets them moving again. And then once you're moving, you actually can start, you know, raising your standards again a little bit. So a lot of it involves um, observing and, and taking notes about what actually is happening in your life. Is that right? Right. And it's very collaborative. It's not like the therapist knows everything. The therapist has some ideas about what might work, but then collaborates in, in what they call guided discovery, where you kind of like, really pay attention to what happens, how does it work, how is it working, what, you know, what, what effect is this having, what effect is that happening, and you kind of like solve problems together. So it's meant to be collaborative. And cognitive therapy in general is um, very widespread in the U.S. And is that, is that right? It's being, it's a pretty popular kind of approach to therapy. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, because it's kind of like often got kind of a simple format, it's easier to research than some other kinds. And so it's got more of a research basis, and then that in turn makes it more popular. Plus it's popular because it is simple. It can be taught. And so often, you know, if you're a client, you can basically understand how it works and start practicing it with yourself even. And that, in fact, cognitive therapy for psychosis is now starting to be put into like workbooks so that people can try you know it's still suggested that you also work with a therapist but like there's a book that came out it's called think you're crazy think again um but it's basically a workbook uh for people that are having psychotic experiences and want to learn how to work with them in a kind of a cognitive way so the cognitive therapy is very successful in the u.s and it's getting um very successful in the uk for psychosis and for extreme states, but it's still pretty new in the U.S. for, um, here in the U.S. for psychosis, right? That's right. There's not, not that many people doing it, um, but it's at least starting to be heard about somewhat more. Um, I think the United States has been so wed to the biological model that it's a little slower for people to take on a psychological method. And then when they do, one thing to watch out for is somebody that sort of like tries to stick their foot halfway into cognitive therapy while still keeping their foot halfway into the medical model. Because one thing cognitive therapists will do is they'll come in with an open mind and say, okay, what's going on here? Let's explore together. Whereas people that have one foot in the medical model will probably um, – take more of a perspective. Well, we know what's going on in schizophrenia. That's really based on a biochemical imbalance in your brain, but maybe we can, through cognitive therapy, help you cope with your illness more, which is, that's way different than the cognitive therapy approach um, because it's, for one thing, it makes people feel a little more hopeless. They're really going to change something because they have this idea that, oh, my brain has got this chemical imbalance and that's the real problem. And what's this therapy really going to do? And the therapist also doesn't really have a full belief that it can do that much. Yeah. The recovery model has kind of been twisted around in the past few years. So that kind of managing symptoms and 
coping with symptoms and being able to do a little bit of work, maybe not quite at the level that you did before you went into the system, but, you know, just having a job that's kind of considered recovery, but it's a really, really depressing, despairing message to, uh, to give people. Yeah, they, they, uh, they're basically the problem is there's no medical model of how true recoveries could happen uh, about how somebody, let's say, I mean, because if let's say a diagnosis like schizophrenia, if that's really this biological problem in your brain, there's no medical model of how that could go away and you could end up functioning at a level higher than you ever did before you had the diagnosis without medication. There's no model for that. Even though we know from outcome studies that that's not an uncommon uh, outcome. And there's also a study recently that came out that looked at people over 15 years and the group that had quit taking medication, the group diagnosed with schizophrenia that had quit taking their medication had eight times higher recovery rate than the people that had stayed on medication. And that's something that the system really isn't, um, you know, kind of willing to look at that maybe you know, maybe the same medication that at one point might have even helped somebody um, put their feet back on the ground, that it then becomes a drag on the person and that, you know, if possible, we should be trying to help people recover without medication or even if it's used to, to only use it short term. You know, that that's something the system is kind of like not wanting to look at or not wanting to consider the possibility of. Yeah, these studies, there are just so many of these studies. I know that there have been studies um, of people who lived long-term in state hospitals, and then when the state hospitals were shut down, they were kind of forgotten about. Um, and, you know, maybe the ones who end up in the criminal justice system are focused on are the people who end up in community community care, community mental health system are focused on. But there's a lot of people who just moved on with their lives, and they just got jobs, and they don't take medication. And I know that one of the things that... Um, I think it's called hidden recovery where um, there's someone who's done a little bit of research on this people who have a, some kind of extreme episode and they end up in the hospital and they get diagnosed with something very serious. It's considered a lifelong biochemical disease that you need medication, um, uh, bipolar or schizophrenia. They come out of the hospital and they just, you know, they just say, no, I don't believe that. And then they move on with their lives and you don't hear about them. You don't, cause they're not in contact with psychiatry or the system, but there are a lot of people out there and we don't really hear these stories, but we need to hear more of, of these stories. And of course the studies that are done and they're, if you dig for them, they're out there. They're just, they're suppressed. They're not brought into the media. They're not supported. There's not the awareness of them because it is so challenging to the mainstream views that the um, psychiatric system has. Um, Ron, tell us a little bit more about the kinds of ways that cognitive behavioral therapy can be useful to people who are having, you know, extreme states. Like you mentioned um, voices, but maybe something like um, people who are having extreme energy states like that would be considered mania, for example, or who are living under paranoia kinds of experiences or have delusional or thoughts that would be considered uh, delusional. Maybe I could focus in specifically on, say, the delusions or paranoid delusions or, or whatever, which is basically the person believes something which um, maybe isn't true. So there's kind of like three approaches that a cognitive therapist might take. And one we talked about a little bit more, which is really talking more directly and in detail about the belief itself and how the person, you know, came to believe it, what they, what evidence they've looked at, what, you know, get the person thinking about how other people might look at the same situation, uh, and basically trying to take a more thoughtful attitude towards what's going on, what's the evidence for it, the evidence against it, what are the advantages of believing the belief, what are the disadvantages of believing it. Uh, one thing we know about people that form beliefs like that is they, their brain often gets into a state where they're really jumping to conclusions. Like uh, they did one kind of experiment that involved a guessing game where a person got bits of evidence and then when they thought they'd seen enough evidence, they guessed the answer. And people that tended to be to have paranoid delusions would guess after they saw very little evidence. But when they, the researchers asked them to slow down, 
and only guess after they saw as much evidence as the other people typically looked at, they found they could guess as well as anyone else. So there was really nothing wrong with their brain so much as this habit of guessing too quickly. And so maybe doing uh, so maybe doing cognitive behavioral therapy would get them to see that habit of thinking and then start to start to change it. Yeah, start to look at more evidence and to think about things a little more carefully. Now, the second thing that a cognitive therapist would do is they'd kind of like look at the person's life story um, to see how maybe they developed a vulnerability to that. So that brings in like if the person was traumatized in various ways or or learned beliefs that um, turned out not to be too helpful. You know, sometimes people kind of like learn to be paranoid in order as a self-protection thing. You know, if I'm vigilant for any sign of threat and I'm really suspicious of everybody, maybe I'll be safer. But maybe the person took that to an extreme. And often after trauma, the person becomes way more hypervigilant and suspicious. So looking at that and understanding the story, or, or another kind of story is maybe the person's life, they ended up with sort of like their self-esteem was kind of crushed. And one thing we know is when people's self-esteem goes way low, they tend to become more paranoid. Um, but if a person can start seeing what crushed their self-esteem and find other ways of building it back up, then they don't tend to become paranoid as much. So just understanding that whole story, which again, the psychiatric system has often denied the role of story. They'll say, your schizophrenia has nothing to do with anything that happened to you or anything that anyone did to you. And that just totally yeah, turns a wall of denial towards the role of you know, what actually did happen in the person's life. But the cognitive therapy is very different. It's very interested in uh, the kind of experiences the person had and how that affected their beliefs and the behavior patterns they learned and that sort of thing. Or there's a more kind of sophisticated version of that is like, well, okay, there might have been environmental stresses or traumas that contributed, but at the basic core, you had this predisposition or this faulty wiring that um, created the susceptibility to schizophrenia, and that's a difference that you have that other people don't have, which is, again, the same sort of despairing kind of message that, that people um, get into. Um, I, I know that there's a, there, the actual biological model isn't that um, sort of explicitly promoted in um, the mental health system. They tend to talk about the biopsychosocial model. So you've got the psychological, you've got the social and you've got the biological, but when it comes right down to it, it's like the biological piece is the piece that is the defining piece. And then if you haven't got that, you haven't got the rest. And then once you say that there's a biological part to it, then of course medication becomes a necessity and you have to really um, consider it in biological um, terms. Uh, Ron, there's, I'm just sort of curious about your thoughts about um, cognitive behavioral therapy in terms of the, the downside of it, it seems like um, if someone is is really focused on getting rid of symptoms or controlling uh, their thinking, that it starts to lose some of the more positive or creative aspects of what they might be going through. That maybe there's a spiritual dimension to what they're going through. Maybe there's a lot of, like you said, there's story or there's meaning or there's stuff in the background. And instead of doing that, they just come in and say, okay, I've got this disordered thinking. I've got these paranoid beliefs. I kind of want to just want to get, get rid of them and, and move on to, with my life so that I can get up in the morning and go to work and be there for my family and this kind of thing. Do you think that that's a danger in um, behavioral approaches that it do, it does become kind of too much of a black box, sort of like how do we control um, the mind and how do we control behavior? Well, uh, I, I think that it could, any kind of approach could be used too dogmatically and it could become a problem. Like you mentioned earlier that how the idea that there's some kind of biological vulnerability has become a, a dogma, even though there's, they have no way of showing that any particular individual has any particular biological vulnerability. They'll just dogmatically present that. Um, so if somebody could get too um, focused on let's just try to control what's going on through cognitive behavioral means. But actually, when people become uh, have a problem with what we call psychotic experience, usually the problem is the person is trying too hard to control what's going on. Um, I mean, one of the most common things is for somebody to be upset by something that's going on in their mind 
to be trying to control it, but the way they try to control it actually makes it happen more. And then as it happens more, the person starts kind of like freaking out about it because, and then they try to control even harder and it gets even worse and it just becomes uh, a psychological crisis. So really a lot of the cognitive approach is trying to get people to back off on trying to control what's on going on in their mind and, and just take more of a tolerant approach that, hey, our mind is, has all kinds of stuff happen in it, and it's, you know, there's, we don't really need to control it. We, we need to control our actions in a meaningful way, but we don't need to, you know, control all these experiences in our mind or get rid of, you know, we don't get, need to get rid of our imagination. Um, it's, it's helpful to know that if we're, um, you know, seeing an image and it's not physically there, it's helpful to know that it's not physically there, but we don't necessarily need to get rid of our mind's ability to see that image. It's such an interesting discussion, and I'm really um, uh, curious to find out more about cognitive behavioral therapy, especially for how it's being used, um, you know, in the way that you're um, using it. I I also wanted to ask you about your activism work. I know you've been a, a longtime organizer for change in the mental health system, and we were talking earlier about um, uh, these three main things that you would like to encourage activists to start um, asking of the local mental health system to just challenge it to, to change. Tell us about, about what those things are. Well, what we've been working on here in Lane County, one is we want the mental health system to have a policy against uh, consumers being told disempowering, untrue things. And so examples might be, we know you have genetic predisposition. We know you have a biochemical imbalance. We know you'll have to take these medications for the rest of your life or you'll have a relapse. Um, all these things that really make people feel more helpless and then become more disabled because they're feeling more helpless or potentially even increases suicide risk when people are made more hopeless. So we think there's really strong reason for why that kind of policy should be there. Now, second is a policy that um, all consumers be made aware that if they choose to get off of medications, that help is available and doing that in the safest way possible. And that's really important because the medications do tend to be habit-forming or, you know, they have withdrawal reactions that people get off. So there really should be help available if people want to get off, just like if a physician puts you know, uh, some kind of a medical thing into your body, and then later you decide it's not a good idea and want it out, it's not ethical for the physician to say, well, I'm not going to take it out. I think it should stay in. Um, So you'll have to take it out yourself. It's just not ethical. Um, And then third, we just think there need to be more alternatives to the the medication approach. So those are the main three things. Ron, have you made any success in uh, Lane County, Oregon, and being able to get this agenda... um, uh, move it forward? Well, it's, it's certainly put some issues on the table. They're trying to hem and haw, like right now our local managed care organization for the county is saying, well, we think what we should do is a survey to find out how much of a problem these things are right now, and then we can fashion our policy around that. And we're basically maintaining, well, the survey's nice, but really uh, you shouldn't wait to do a survey and find out how many people are being told disempowering untrue things before you have a policy against it. You should just have the policy first because it doesn't even matter if one person is told that. It shouldn't be happening. It's really really interesting that you mentioned a survey because I've I've seen um, agencies and policymakers use surveys to kind of manipulate issues. Even though we've got a huge amount of evidence of something, we'll just put a survey out. And if the survey doesn't come back... um, in any way that, that, um, you know, challenges the way that we're doing things. We'll just keep doing the things that we're, that we're doing. There's a kind of like a spin control that happens with surveys, I, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's a way of kind of like trying to punt or get away from the issue, but we're, you know, it, it, it does allow us to have something to put their feet to the fire because what we found is that the mental health system likes to say they're listening to consumers. You know, there's a consumer council for the County and, okay, we want to hear all your views, and then they'll, you know, make nice sounds about them, but they really try to avoid having to implement anything. 
And so we tried to come up with some things that were kind of like concrete and definite enough and yet and, and obviously really involve strong and important issues and then kind of try to put their feet to the fire and say, okay, why aren't you doing this? Ron, we are just about out of time and I wanted to um, make sure that people had a chance to um, get in touch with you if you have an email address or a website that you can share with us. Okay, yeah. So people can email me and my email address is R-O-N-U-N-G-E-R, that's Ron Unger, at E-F-N dot O-R-G. And uh, I also have a website. Um, it's uh, recoveryfromschizophrenia.org slash blog. Ron Unger, thanks a lot for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to an interview with Ron Unger. Ron is a counselor in different agencies in the mental health system in Eugene, Oregon. He's a longtime organizer with Mind Freedom International, working for human rights in the mental health system. And he also is a teacher and counselor who uses cognitive behavioral therapy for helping people through experiences that get labeled psychosis, schizophrenia, um, different kinds of madness and extreme states and hearing voices. Um, that's about all the time that we have this week on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio broadcasts every Tuesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern on Pacifica Affiliates, WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD, Kasilof, and Anchorage, Alaska. Produced by peer-run mental health communities, freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio to help us get broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.